0: episode 103 of the Customer Support Leaders podcast. I'm Charlotte Ward. This week, we have another panel for you, and this time we're talking about managing change. I'd like to welcome back to the podcast today, Stacy Justino, Ryan Klosner, Greg Skirving, Simone Secchi and Hilary Dudek. And welcome first time guest, Lauren Fern. Lauren is a senior manager of Global Core Support at Zapier and joins us for the first time today. Let's dive straight in. So I'd like to welcome everyone to this week's panel. Thank you for joining me, everyone. Um, this panel is about managing change in the workplace. And I know you have all worked through a lot of change in your support teams one way or another in, in your organizations of, of actually quite quite a different set of organizations looking at my panelists here today. So I'm really interested to see where some of these points take us. Um, the the first thing I'd like to get a feel from from you all is how hard it is to manage change what's the hardest thing you've encountered or or, or the, the the most difficult thing you found about managing change in the
1: workplace
2: I was reading um something about values last night and uh and then I went completely different way and I went straight to the source and I, I was reading a uh, this quote from, uh, from a philosopher that, that I didn't know that um, says, and you know, forgive me for my Italian accent and trying to read this, this English quote, but um, so the relations between the worthwhile and the practically demanded are obviously of that deep, puzzling kind. And that made me think about like the practically demanded at, at the most difficult experience that I had, which was uh, facing out an organization that was like uh, in a company that was failing and uh, and slowly like, uh, you know, um, uh, having to, let's say off board to use a, a soft term, like all the people in my team one by one through the course of like several months. And I think that was, that's probably the most difficult type of change that you are going to encounter in, uh, and manage as a leader in an organization. So, I think mm. that will be my experience,
0: yeah, offboarding is definitely a type it's a structural change to the company we we've had um we've had a panel discussion quite a few weeks back, I think, talking about offboarding people, but we don't often touch on what's left behind and how you manage manage the people that are still there, right yeah,
2: exactly. exactly and especially I think what makes them artist is when. There is um you know an external cause and it, and it's not uh due to a disciplinary act of some kind or uh, a lack of commitment from the people that work in your team but it's simply like you know uh a, a, a traumatic business occurrence let's call it like that that causes you to to have to make the best of it.
3: Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of interesting that you started with that because that's a big change and uh, obviously fraught with a lot of uncertainty for the people that have to stay. So um, I think, uh, um, you know, for me, um, uh, I've dealt with that one a few times. I've dealt with, uh, uh, well, how many times have we implemented a new system? And that's a change or a new process. And you have to do that. Um, uh, making sure your communication is uh, precise is uh, is critical, I think. And, um, working with people, understanding your people in terms of, of how they, um, how they handle change. Um, some people get it. It's like, no, oh, great, no problem. Um, um, hopefully, hopefully, uh, um, you folks have heard of the book, who moved my cheese, which is a, a fantastic tool, um, that I like to use for people that, that struggle with change. And, uh, but I think from a manager perspective, some people get it right away. No problem okay we'll do it like this other people it's going to take a lot longer for them and that's uh, that's uh, that's a bit of a challenge to you know be patient with them uh, support them through that and uh, you know just uh, just let them know that this is the direction we're going with whatever and uh, you know how can i help
4: i think part of that helping them understand can be setting expectations wherever possible sometimes the change is out of our control as support leaders um, but wherever possible, putting that control back into the team's hands, I found can be really helpful, including them on decisions, even if you know maybe they've already been mostly made, getting their input and feedback and making sure they feel valued and they feel heard. And then setting expectations around whatever the changes. is. Okay, here's what's going to happen in two weeks. Here's four, three months, six months, whatever the case may be. It helps. I found it helps the people that hire, have higher stress levels to sort of manage that anxiety better.
5: I think related to that, what Hillary was saying, especially when it's a uh, change that the support leader or support team doesn't have full control over, because a lot of that stuff comes top down, is also highlighting the things we do have control over in our team uh, with this change. So, hey, this is a business decision. Um, these are the things that aren't like movable, but here are the things that we can make decisions on and how to do, make this change best for our customers.
6: To echo what everyone's saying, it's it's very interesting in preparation for this topic. I was reminded of about a, a workshop, two different workshops I was fortunate enough to take uh, about eight years ago. Um, one was at the topic about thriving in times of change, just as an individual contributor. The other one is about leading change uh, for uh, leadership and management. And they And I was going back to my notes here from that workshop. Yes, I still have my notes from the workshop eight years ago. Uh, it basically categorized uh, team members when dealing with change into four different categories. And I thought that this was really insightful. The one is for those uh, who are the people who actually are nostalgic for the past. They're not necessarily opposed to change, and they're not even happy with the, the status quo. They're actually harking back to a, a, a an earlier time. That could have been when they first started at the organization. Things were done a certain way. Um, So any change that has come has been met with perhaps some resistance, um, but it was mostly about a simpler time. It was based on how things were usually when they started. The second group um, are usually less enthusiastic about the change themselves, um, but they're more sort of stuck. They'll only change uh, when given no other choice, as if this is the clear direction that we have to go. So sort of when push comes to shove, they will change. The other group is the uh, willing to change, but they want to be led. You have to really make a clear path to what the change is, explain the rationale and the purpose for that change. And then the fourth group, um, where those who were very much wanting to be active participants in leading that change, even if they're not necessarily leaders, very willing to engage and knowing. And I think... Quite frequently, no one is just one of these. I know myself, I'm likely a combination of a couple of these ones, so I'm sure we all can identify where we fit. But knowing where your own team members um, sit in terms of their position from your experience working and leading them, I think can have a lot of influence into your strategy uh, when managing and implementing the change itself and how you communicate that and and manage your various team members. I think
1: um, something that I've experienced, which is very um, kind of along the theme of of kind of I guess personality types is that when you're working in support and there's a change that's coming about that is related to your customers you're for the most part going to be working with relatively empathetic humans and so trying to navigate something that you know isn't always necessarily going to be seen as a positive with thing with people who are so invested in what's best for the customers um, can take a little bit of time um, but it's definitely worth getting those folks on board for sure.
3: It's, uh, it's funny you, uh, you, you categorized those groups, right? I think that was really good. Um, and I know that uh, uh, for me, years ago uh, in managing, um, um, and as Charlotte knows, I'm big on perspective. Uh, I handle change very well. So, for instance, an office move, right? They, they put boxes on your, on your desk. Friday, you pack it up, right? You pack everything on your desk. And you go home over the weekend. And then Monday, you get in your car. And you just drive to a different office, you unpack your stuff, you do the same thing that you did before. It's just, uh, you know, and, uh, um, I struggled a little earlier on because, uh, uh, I didn't understand. People had different perspectives, and and how how disruptive these things are, you know. And I, I couldn't understand. Um, so that was a learning a learning curve for me to understand that people look at things differently. And and for whatever reason. And I love uh, I love uh, you sharing the the breakdown of the four groups there, Ryan. That's that's really good. It really sort of puts things into into perspective so that you can identify. Um, why people may be resistant to change so that you can apply the right uh, the right remedy to help them out.
0: Mm, yeah, I agree. I think it's really easy to assume everyone responds and, and should respond even in the same way that we do to change. And may, maybe um, as our leadership journey progresses, because we're so used to managing change because we have so much more visibility to it as well, right? That That's a big part of how... Agile, you have to become as a leader when you're leading a team. You have that visibility that an IC doesn't necessarily have. So you're you're kind of more used to to going along with things and being able to manage them personally anyway. And you assume that because you you have that visibility and therefore you have managed to manage the change personally, that everyone else should just be able to kind of roll with it as you're rolling with it.
2: I think that the you know you mentioned that. Having a process or a strategy for change, uh, and about the organization size, I think my uh, you know biggest challenge was going uh, outside my comfort zone in terms of like not being part of uh, organic change. Because my first work experience, I started from the very entry level, and I went until a certain point, and I got into a leading role uh, and. And then I started growing that organization and grow organically, one person to however many people. But like at some point, <clears throat> that uh, you know, as you progress with your career, it's not always going to be organic growth. You're going to sort of uh, come in, uh, you know, uh, and like breaking all the crystals in the room with like the, the grace of an elephant, you know, because you ha- you have to push the famous like practical change. And, uh, and, and you're hired to do dr- drastically change things in an organization. And that organization already has methodologies, processes uh, that you know, probably weren't working or they wouldn't ask you to make that change. And you have to, first of all, right. gain trust of those people that were in that team and convince them that like, you have the right recipe to change that in, in, a, way, in a way that they're not used to and they don't necessarily know um and i think that the difference between this organic change and uh and more artific- let's say artificial change is, is very uh clear you know it, it was it became very apparent to me uh in at a certain mm-hmm. point and then obviously grows organically from a certain point again but there's a stark difference between these two aspects and it's much easier to have. To build a strategy in an organic growth situation, that it is with an artificial uh, change situation.
6: Mm
0: -hmm. Do you think that um, we have more? uh, Do you think we have a a higher proportion of people who are more resistant to change in bigger organisations? Do you think that's just a, a natural byproduct of having that kind of detachment from from the decision making process that drives the change?
6: I think it can de- be dependent on the actual team and organizational stru- uh, structure more at the, the macro level than the overall size of the company. Um, I can tell you, as someone who was a um, manager of unionized workers at one point in their career, managing change within that organization was much more resistant because of the, um, not because of the unionized protections, uh, I think those are all great things, um, but because of the, um, protections that have been put in place um, to protect the worker also have given them a lot of protections to um, potentially have more resistance. And a lot of the folks I worked with there would have been classified in that category where they're um, more harking back to that simpler time, that time. when they started uh, with the, this. and this, it was actually government at that point. Um, so when they started, and in many instances that was pre-computers, pre-internet, when the computers weren't going down all the time, um, and they were resistant to that change. But I also think just in addition to the four categories of the type of people that you're managing or leading through change, it's important to break down the types of change that we actually deal with within a professional environment. Because there really is a, a, only four categories. Uh, I was, again, reviewing my notes from the workshop, and it's it's been... Um, actually good it's like revisiting an old lesson you're like yes i remember that that was good i should look at these notes more often um but the the four types of changes that we deal with certainly in a professional context are technological changes so that could be just change of tooling help desk software anything that is a change of technology hey i'm gonna have to switch out your laptop not my laptop uh you know you're, <laughs> you're getting a newer one but it's just the change um, operational changes so that could be reorganizations, layoffs, team changes, anything within the organization, strategic changes. So that could be um, going um, uh, to focusing on a completely different vertical or direction in terms of the strategy of the company. Um, And then a mission change. So that could be moving from uh, a B2C-focused company from B2B or any of those. And some of the mission changes often would fall into strategy and vice versa. But really just comes down to those main hierarchical uh, categories of change and then learning how to work with those personalities within those four other categories and again just like with the other ones a lot of those overlap but I think the breakdown can really um, be helpful to understand how to best tackle uh, the strategy uh, from within your own team. Mm -hmm.
0: So so then with the different kind of sizes and types? Maybe, as you said, it's not so, so directly related to size, but with the different types of organization and those different types of changes that you were talking about, do you think it's important that whatever the combination there, that that we really have a process or strategy for managing the change itself?
3: I'd say absolutely. I, I, again, you, you need to understand what type of change it is, and then you need to understand why a person would uh, object to that change, um, because that provides you, I mean, that's the root cause of the, of, of the issue that you need to handle, and you need to identify that um, and uh, so that you can a- apply the right remedy. If you don't, you know, you might, you might, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, make things a lot worse for that person because you're uh, treating them uh, as, as one of the different four types.
5: The process, having a process for it is super important. Um, I think that also through having a process, you can create a culture on your team that is more uh, amenable to change. Um, If you go through a big change, everybody on your team sees, oh, that wasn't so painful. (laughs) Um, Leadership had really considered the impact to us, the impact to customers. Um, Then I think you can shift that culture and shift people's thoughts about change And I think one of the pieces of the process that is super important is a feedback loop, is, you know, this change is happening, but we should give people on our team the opportunity and the channels to be able to give us feedback on how that change actually went. Um, What I like to say is, we didn't throw all the old documentation in a fire. So if we make a change, we um, change the process, we can see how it was better or worse or different than the old process. And even if the change didn't work out how we thought, we can probably learn something and improve the old process if we want to go back to the old process. Um, and, but we've learned something, and um, it wasn't all for naught.
3: I love what you said, Stacey. And I think for me, um, if we can anticipate, uh, I'll talk about communication, we can anticipate where where the potential obstacles will be, which is always uncertainty, right? I mean, typically, people don't like not knowing or um, feeling that they have have something taken away, and then your your example, Stacy. I love the fact that you know we're going to do this, and you know we're 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 committed to it, but we're, we'll look at that and maybe we'll make some changes. Um, that's great communication up front, I think, so that uh, um, it uh, it dispels as much uncertainty as uh, as possible for people.
1: One thing that um, just to piggyback off your communication point there, Greg. One thing that we um, have kind of instilling everybody at Zapier, its up here is that when you roll out a change you should talk about it three times before it's kind of publicly posted so we have like an internal blog async which um everybody posts their kind of like change logs results logs company strategy things like that and before it gets to that point it should have been talked about three times so whether that's a discussion on slack or whether it's in a small team meeting or um whatever it is you know, having those conversations before it gets to like a very public place um, is is kind of key to rolling out specifically kind of strategic changes. Um, so people can get to, when they get to that point, and they see all that information. It's like, yeah, I know all of these um, things. I ha- have questions um, and I know where to go with them. So nothing is a surprise. Like we don't want anything to be a surprise. Um, and that's worked really, really well. And having that transparency and that visibility into all these uh, strategic decisions and changes that we make, it really does foster this culture of, of being okay with change. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting for new folks to join the company when they see the level of transparency around change to strategy and things like that. It's kind of, they're kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> I didn't know I would get to see all this stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a shift in, in what people expect from a company, but it's something that has been really successful for us.
0: I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, Lauren, if I can, because I'm curious about the process that you go through getting that change in front of three people, most particularly first off. I, I, I'm i interested, is it the same set of people that have that discussion three times? Or is or is that three different groups that you're kind of test running the idea on?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a bit of both, really. So the way that we kind of operate um, in terms of the way that the customer support team works at Zapier is that we have our regional teams. So we have EMEA, we have Amers, and we have Asia Pacific. And then within that, we have um, team leads who are all regional based as well. So there's like only four uh, individual contributors to a team lead and then um, maybe two or three team leads to a manager, etc. So there's no, uh, it's very easy to communicate. And that's part of the reason why we have that structure. And the way that the process that we kind of take when those changes um, are, are kind of coming about is There may be some sort of discussion that happens on Slack um, and that can be anybody in the company kind of gets involved with that. It really depends where it takes place, but we don't really love to have conversations like that in any private channels. Um, So that conversation could take place. And then the next phase would be that um, it will get talked about in one of the small team meetings. So all the team needs to have a meeting every week um, where they can, you know, there's not really any agenda that we say you have to talk about you know xyz every week it's kind of up to the team lead but that will always come up if there's a change to discuss um and then the next part is we have like a monthly team meeting we have two team meetings a month for time zones um, and we talk about it there as well so that's generally the process that we take and then aside from that there's also um if there's like a discussion happening we uh we basically you have just going to plug zapier here we use zaps to um react to a message in Slack and it gets um, essentially a form gets filled out so that that gets sent into our monthly support newsletter so people can be aware of that discussion happening um, and then once all of that's kind of taken place and we know that everyone knows then it will get posted in async so um, that process can be relatively long-winded it will always take about a week but the thing that we've learned in the past year I would say specifically at Zapier is This the change management stuff shouldn't just never be rushed, unless you absolutely have to rush it. Just don't rush it. Um, It's way more effective if you take your time and do it right.
2: Um, One thing that I, I mean, I think one thing that I did and that I um, facilitate um, in my last role uh, was to create a communication between departments within a company when change was happening. Um, that was just as good as the communication that was going to come out to the customers, right? Because your communication to the customers is going to be like just as good as your internal communication is. So if the internal communication between the departments, and I was talking with somebody this week about the feedback loop between product and, and support. And so specifically that connection there, if that connection isn't effective, your external communication is not going to affect it. So, involving and creating visibility for the support team to be at the forefront of uh, uh, to remind the rest of the company that of their existence of, of you know how do I have to be involved in the in the feedback loop is not to be assumed at all. When you're in a management position in support, you have to create that visibility. You have to bring those people in the forefront in your team. They have to be involved in the feedback loop that can be beta phases in the launch of like a product, for example, like closed beta, open beta. And you have to to have, for example, the, the folks that, that that take care of like the helps and to be involved in those phases, gathering that feedback um, from customers in those phases, be involved in the in the decision making, even if it's just like in, in terms of being there when decisions are made, be informed about those decisions and then managing that language that needs to to be proactively fought to be going out to the users. I think this uh, you know, facilitating the, the creation of this loop between people and in, uh, in the company, I think it, it's probably the biggest part of managing uh, change.
0: So we've all um, got some really good theories and really good strategies and really good approaches there from for managing change within our organizations or from workshops. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm kind of interested in making this a bit more personal now. Um, And I would love for you to bring, like just bring all of your dirty laundry to this next part of the discussion, (laughs) which is what's been your biggest difficulty? What's been your worst experience with change, either in your current organization or in the dim and distant past, which may be slightly more broadcastable?
2: I have very broadcastable, like uh, bad experiences. So that's no problem. Um yeah, I would say I um for a period of time I managed some pretty difficult change, which is like setting up shop in a different country and in, in a different part of the world for for organization. And sometimes it went well, sometimes it, it went horribly wrong. And um I would say, you know, there are and I think Charlotte we talk about this specifically, uh, about like uh, cultural differences and Understanding uh, cultural differences, but there's also not just the part where you explain it to customers, but for me, there was also the part when you uh, explain it to to the people that hire you to manage that the change and to sort of like slowly lead them into a better understanding of the place where they're going to to set up shop. And sometimes that's easy, and they they get it. Sometimes they don't. And so, <laughs> how do you make the best of that situation? I would say. I think you have to make sure to sort of like, um, uh, you know, we have an expression that's like putting the ends forward. So being very thorough in the explanation of what's going to be like uh, to face this change and what is going to be drastically different and try to not assume anything that this, you know, that people will think uh, about a context that they don't know. So you know, you're opening a branch of a company in a different country. Uh, All the I don't know the regulations, the the bureaucracy. How is that different from the the one of the people that are uh, the country that they're from? Uh, Like how you know you have to be very thorough in understanding uh, what to explain, what they probably will not uh, be okay with, and how to sort of like ease them into it. Um, and I think for me, yeah, that that's that was like the most difficult part when there was like a very stark cultural difference, a very stark difference in uh, you know, how I don't know, benefits are managed. How and, and Ryan mentioned like a unionized organization, right? So for me, I work in the US, I work in Europe, I'm used to both, like I'm used to know know this period for people and I'm also used to like all the very strict regulations that are in a country like Germany which is like a very bureaucratic country if you are not familiar with it um where even things like remote work are strictly regulated and just calling something home office or remote makes a legal difference you know so like this type of thing is not immediate at all in the mind of uh, a lot of people and I think that that was like the biggest difficulty
4: there? I worked at a company, I won't say which one, um, that for reasons decided that they needed to implement a salary reduction across the board. And um, whether or not I agree with the decision, it still was not, leaders were not informed ahead of time, people leaders in general. So it was dropped on everybody at the same time in a group meeting. So managing the chaos and the fallout from that was extremely difficult because of course my team came to me well had all these questions about it and how long have you known about this and i i I hope they believe me and i was like i just learned about this the same as you um so this is less of a a learning i get well this is a learning for for the companies rely on your people leaders they're there for a reason um, if you communicate these things to them, even if we disagree, we can help you mitigate some of the chaos that ensues from unpopular decisions. Um, if you arm us with some talking points or some facts, we can twist this for you, especially support leaders. We're good at that. We can turn this into a positive somehow. So um, make sure that you you get us on your on your side. I think. And so in the in the fallout for me, um, what I did was I instituted half days off rotating for the team my thought was you're getting paid 15% less. I'm going to let you work 15% less as long as the queues are covered and the customers are happy. You take care of you. That's what I can do. Company can't do it, but I can do it for you. So that's what I did, but I, I certainly probably could have done more or at least been better prepared had I been
1: prepared. Uh, I worked for a company several years ago that went through a process of changing their pricing structure. So this was like a, a build your own website platform and we had loads of different plans that were all kind of incrementally different and they ranged from being about three quid to uh, 99 pounds a month, I think it was. And there was way too many and there was all these customers on these very, very specific plans and it was really complicated to support. I'm sure we've all experienced that with SAS specifically. Um, and so they made the decision to say, right, we're gonna, we're gonna switch out to like four plans and we're gonna put all of our customers into these plans. And so the initial plan was for us to say, we're going to move everyone to the next plan that's kind of suits them the most. And the, the, the thing that was kind of problematic about it is because we we sort of didn't, we knew that our customers weren't going to be happy about it because some of them were going to lose features, but we just didn't have very good data to understand what that actually was going to look like. And it was a very manual process, even down to looking at a spreadsheet and looking at what features some people had. And we had 10,000 customers, so it was a horrible spreadsheet. Um, So that was really hard. And the biggest thing, really, for, for me during that process was trying to help the team to understand what might happen without knowing what was going to happen. So just really managing through quite a lot of ambiguity, um, not having data was a massive problem. That's something that I've taken away from that situation, to always have the data to back up the thing that you're changing if you can. Um, and also, to, it's really important, I think, to train you, the leaders around you to be okay with ambiguity as well. That's a skill that I've really tried to push at Zapier as well, because... And um, sometimes we just don't know. I think this year has probably shown that for most people that you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so getting good at being OK with ambiguity is a, is a really important skill, I think.
0: I think that's a really good point. I love a, a data backed change. I really do. But sometimes you have to accept that data, data, data is better than no data and It's okay if it's imperfect or if it doesn't give you clear conclusions. Ultimately, sometimes you just have to pick a path and it might not be based on the best data, but that's still better than making no decisions and taking no action when something very clearly has to change.
1: Definitely. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's even if, as you say, even if it's not perfect, it's just important to have something for sure. Um, it just, it, it feels like sometimes if you're trying to roll something out and you, you're not, you don't have anything to back it up, it, that the thing doesn't have very much credibility. So how is, how are you going to get people to invest in it? That's the thing that's always on my mind about change.
0: Has anyone here had an idea for a change and has not managed to convince the relevant stakeholders to buy into that change?
6: No comment. <laughs> well, you know, I'll go. I'll go. I think we're all going. Okay. We, you know, we maybe dealt with something recently. So I dealt with something very recently. No, I'm not going to name names, but it's recent. So it is in my current role. And uh, we, uh, my department, my team, ended up managing um, some of the um, custom. Uh, configurations for some voice bots and I think what had happened is we were a larger team um, and then our team changed in size for a variety of reasons so our initial interest and willingness to learn a tool to be familiar with it to benefit customers so we could understand it and explain it on a very tangible level um, ultimately evolved in us owning this tool Uh, which was definitely not a tool that uh, a customer-facing team should own. It's definitely much more of a technical services-based tool. And I have been working for some time to transition uh, the responsibilities for this tool out out of our team's reach. It was the one thing that um, the entire team was working on. I didn't particularly enjoy doing. It wasn't really in their primary skill set, although we learned it well, doing anything in it took us far longer than it would uh, someone who would be an engineer or on a, in a, working in a services capacity. Um, but for whatever reason, my request kept uh, falling on, on, I wouldn't say deaf ears, but uh, wasn't getting any action to resolve this in some form. And I think if for a variety of reasons, um, it hadn't maybe I'd been too diplomatic in my communication previously, not fully emphasizing in, in my communication, the extent of um, the extent that it was deprioritizing us from our, our primary customer facing responsibilities of which we were actually being measured against. This did not come into any of the um, KPIs or core responsibilities of our team. And we were ultimately, I think, totaling probably about 20% of our time in this tool uh, so it was significant. So I had to ultimately really quantify this uh, for it to be inherently understood, and then also make some very um, specific recommendation as to who could potentially assume this responsibility as we make this transition away. Um, as usually with these sort of situations, as it evolved into us by being a de facto owner of this, even though it wasn't really an owner, but it was sort of an owner-like relationship with this product. Uh, we needed to also figure out the evolution to give it back uh i think just this week we may have gotten there so i'll follow up with you later but i'm i'm, I'm feeling optimistic today uh and i think uh it, it took a lot of direct communication to get there
0: we but do like, expect you to follow up yeah good luck <laughs> we'll be we'll be waiting on, on the uh on the website or on your next appearance on the podcast maybe for a uh, for an
4: update on that one my manager is in Sweden, um, so she, it's quite a cultural difference between Sweden and the U.S. So uh, the email that you mentioned that direct communication. That's what she calls hard emails. She'll talk to me. She'll be like, oh, that was so hard. That was so hard, Hillary. And I'm like, but it got results. <laughs>
6: It's Uh, interesting. I had that as well uh, because I'm originally born in Canada. So we tend to lead with a bit more of a softer uh, British style, uh, more of a European style. And then uh, I did have to learn to adapt uh, to be uh, more on that harder communication style um, since I I moved uh, to the United States.
5: In terms of uh, decision or change where you don't get uh, these stakeholders on board, uh, working in a gaming company, Especially part of a public company owned by another company that is in a different industry. Uh, So Big Fish Games was owned by Churchill Downs uh, for some time. Now it's owned by Aristocrat Technologies. But at the time, you know, we were acquired and the gaming industry, you acquire customers. They cost a certain number of dollars to acquire. You don't recoup that cost immediately. Um, so you put in marketing spend and you get the return on that spend in six months, a year, 18 months. Um, but you know, when you're trying to hit revenue targets, um, we were focused on daily numbers, weekly numbers in terms of revenue. And so our crediting philosophies from like the game development and production side of things was focused on hitting their goals, which makes sense. But uh, that didn't actually work with what people want or what a lot of other games do. So we'd have an outage and then we'd go back and forth with the internal teams. Well, we should just credit everyone. Um, but then that would have an impact on the sales for the next week or two weeks. Um, so it was an internal struggle and there was never sort of a, you know, coming more to uh, the support side of things, even though um, it's kind of been shown that people will spend more money. If you give them free stuff in a game, they just won't spend it all next week, but in a month, that player might have gone from making a ninety nine cent purchase to now making five dollar purchases a week um but that was always a really big struggle, um especially as someone I'm a casual game player, so I am the market, and I'm like, no, this is me. I'm telling you what, from my personal experience as a gamer of casual games um my behavior is, and that's the behavior for a lot of players, so that was a bit frustrating
2: a lot of uh, uh of, um, I'm not gonna say unsuccessful, but like i continuous research and, and that that I've been making into the years that I've been in a leadership position into managing the specific part of change, which is like um, being effective with tagging, which has been a challenge for me throughout my entire career in leadership at different degrees. Like, and I think it's it just like a continuous research into perfecting the effectiveness of uh, of this and in. And, be able to because we mentioned data before and a lot of data in uh, in support setting it's collected through tagging through categorization so I think explaining the importance of, uh, of categorization and tagging to agents um, at the different level as different levels of challenge because you have your more I don't know it, it depends on the size of your support organization but you have the people that work closely more closely do you uh, with you and uh, maybe at the second or third, or third level, uh, a third tier support, them uh, are more familiar with that they do that. It's more part of their day-to-day. And then you have agents which are trying to do their job the best way possible, try to move fast. And they're trying to think fast. And, um, you know, they they sort of have to uh, develop like a more like a muscular memory of uh, understanding how to take that has to go end-in-end with their you know, how fast and effective they want to be in their work, but it also has to serve the purpose of uh, categorizing, correctly and collecting data for you because otherwise your entire data infrastructure falls apart. So mm. how do you manage the change of like going from an ineffective categorization to an effective one? It's a very painful process where you have to make 10 steps backwards, uh, you know, reanalyze the way, the, the methodology that you adopt into Categorizing and try to find your way through uh, the resistance that there is on the other side. Because, you know, there are business priorities at a management level, at a product level that are kind of lost and maybe tier one agents,
1: right? Mm. So, how Mm. do you
2: make it so that, like, if we don't do this right, your job is going to be harder and harder because we don't have enough visibility. And if we don't have enough visibility, we don't have a chance to. Uh, influence those decisions that are made at the top. Right? I think that's the way that I that I manage to uh, do my make my best effort into you know creating this understanding and managing this this change in, in a successful way.
0: Yeah, really creating a solid data set. Um, Not for this podcast, Simone, but I need to get you back to talk about your 10-year journey with tagging because I think that is something we can all relate to. Um, And I think what just really briefly one thing that's really interesting about that a that I'm kind of go just starting on that journey in my current organization now so I definitely need to get hold of you quite soon um but tagging seems such a small thing like as soon as you start that conversation of we need to tidy up our tags it sounds like you're just gonna potter around in there for a little while like you're weeding in a garden or something right but, <laughs> but actually you have to it's a lot of work but it, it's it, it's quite cyclical so you have to go through some change to give you data to enable you to create more change so let's get let's get you back to talk about that at some point um I think you did mention to me as well at one point that you had the ultimate dashboard so I think we need to get a fireside with Simone quite soon because it sounds like you've got stuff all sorted Okay let's move on. So although we all found it difficult to get going with our biggest uh, difficulties and failures with change we've kind of uh, we've kind of made it. Um but now just uh, just before we come to our one piece of advice which is what I always like to wrap up with have you got any stories of big successes with managing change?
3: Yeah, I've got uh, I've got one. I think I've always uh, um uh, tried to do a good job of uh, communicating three times like uh, like uh, Lauren says and uh, um, communicate with facts and and do that but I- inevitably um, you'll run into people that are resistant to change just because it's change sometimes it's good change but they're just resistant because it's change and um, there again I'm going to talk about this great book that I found out about 20 years ago called who moved my cheese and if you haven't read it it's a must uh, it's a really quick read uh, it's about mice and cheese and there's four different types carrying on the theory of uh, uh of four and um um this one gentleman that I had to work for me just you know he was a holdout just wouldn't wasn't you know everybody else was on board and uh, uh I tried everything and uh I went out at lunch went to the bookstore, bought a copy of the book. And I said, you know, you should have a read of this, right? So it's like 105 type of thing. And uh, about a quarter to two, he came back and he put the book on my desk and he says, okay, I, I get it. So if you haven't read Who Who Moved My Cheese, it's an absolute must, uh, provides a, a, a scope and perspective for different people. and 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 I use it when people struggle.
5: What other big successes have we got managing change? Um, I was able to, with other various stakeholders, move from one support uh, ticketing system to another. And from the day we decided to the day we switched 100% over, this would be like four different products or areas we were moving over um, for probably 20 different games. Um, We uh, did it in six months and we did it successfully. And there was very little drop in productivity because we had done all the Um, pre-work to make sure that we addressed all the flows and workflows and processes that we're going to change. So the impact to our agents was pretty minimal. And we had multiple trainings, multiple workshops. And um, I can't believe we did it, but we did. And I think that's a testament to having those processes for managing change.
6: I think just to add on to what you were saying, uh, Stacy, a lot of my success with managing change on a large scale, whether that was with 100 agents on a team uh, where we were working with very complicated business units and the length of each customer interaction was taking far longer than it should, not due to any incompetence on the agent's part, no fault of the Uh, customer who was calling, it ultimately, uh, or reaching out, it had to do with the fact that these were very complicated uh, business units that were involving financials. Um, And to that extent, we knew that if we could cut 30 seconds from all of these calls by improving the workflows the agents were using, we'd actually save a million dollars a year. So I was proposing this, and then they said, great, you could rewrite it. didn't think I was going to be getting that, but that was actually a great opportunity to embrace that change. But what I found was really helpful in putting these changes out is doing the old, you know, who, what, where, when, why, and how to the entire team. Here's what we're doing. You know, this is why we're doing it. This is the impact uh, to all of you. This is what we'll be doing to mitigate that impact as much as possible. And this is how we'll be keeping you updated as we move through this process every step of the way, and then working with smaller cohorts to help manage that change and do the training. And Generally, we had shorter, briefer sessions with those who were eager to lead the change to be our champions, and then we had some longer breakout sessions with some of those folks that are uh, naturally a bit more resistant or hesitant
1: to change.
0: Lauren, what about you? Have you got any uh, any personal stories of uh, success with change?
1: Yeah, so um, one of the biggest changes that we implemented um, at Zapio within the support team, this was a change that kind of came about when I first joined the team. So it was a real collaboration between the whole group of managers um, that were working in support. Was, um has always been a very, very flexible workplace. So we were fully remote and we have completely flexible hours as well. Uh, and that can be very difficult within a support team because... You need to have enough coverage. You need to know when people are working to a certain extent to make sure that you can make sure your customers are getting a good response time. Um, And so it was a challenge. It was becoming difficult. We would see folks would all go for lunch at the same time or they would take extended lunch breaks at the same time um, or they would start late. And it was just very difficult to understand when everyone was around. Uh, And we toyed with the idea of like implementing a tool that's kind of called who's in the queue and it would help people understand who was around. But ultimately what we settled on was to come up with a, a flexible schedule. So what that kind of means is instead of everyone just work whenever they want, no matter what region you're in, you're in your region, but you work your day between 7am and 7 p.m. So some people will work 9 till 5, some people work 8 till 4, 7 till 3, or some people will start much later and end their day at 7 pm. Um so it still gives a, a great amount of flexibility, but it, it does allow people to you know know when everyone else is around um and that was really hard because it it wasn't a change that was happening across the business so it was just our team that we were implementing this change for um and to go from being a, a company who's incredibly flexible to one that's still offering flexibility but in a slightly different way it was it was a tough uh, it was a tough change to roll out but um the the major thing really was that we just really communicated and listened to what everybody had to say um and and it was a success and now it's a good thing really because people are able to help each other within their regions they know who is working at, at certain times um and it wasn't that different anyway because people tend to work the same schedule so it was just a matter of that structure being implemented rather than them making any changes to to what they were doing anyway
0: yeah that's that's often the way isn't it that um once you get on the other side of change, it's actually either not as big a change as everyone was fearing <laughs> um, yeah, or, or genuinely, you, you know, or, or genuinely kind of people set into, settle into it much quicker than they, they think, even if it was a massive change. Right. So, I mean, in your case, it wasn't an enormous change necessarily, but, but that it's well, the problem it's the,
1: of the change, Yeah yeah, yeah it's that front loaded yeah. fear somehow of, yeah, yeah. yeah and and i mean looking looking back um I think we sometimes i, I think there's a tendency to over correct as well for change, like oh, everybody's going to be really upset about this. we have to make sure we do x, y z, and sometimes that's not necessary, so we've learned a lot in that regard as well to make sure that we are um not not overcorrecting too much for for the potential of people being upset.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, and, and some good advice, which, um, which I'm not going to allow you to bring back in a minute when I ask for your one piece of advice. <laughs> so let, Let's get to the final point of this discussion, which I, I always like to round out a panel with asking what everyone's one piece of advice is in this particular area. So Stacey, maybe we can come to you first. What's your one piece of like solid gold advice when it comes to managing change?
5: It's actually the advice I would give, uh, generally speaking, but it, it definitely applies to managing change. It's lead with transparency and empathy. Um, oftentimes, support reps can feel in the dark. And so, being as transparent as you can be greatly helps them, especially when you're introducing change. And as for empathy, um, we can forget what we're asking our reps to do every day, especially when we're trying to change something for the better. And it can have some unintended consequences. So. Leading with empathy, not just for customers, but empathy for stakeholders and especially for your agents, I think is super helpful and would be the advice I would give.
4: So, my one piece of advice for managing change and support would be communicate frequently and regularly, um, and focus on listening and supporting the individuals, all the individuals on your team. But then allow those natural leaders that do embrace change to sort of take lead and. Drive positivity towards that change. Let them sort of help you herd everyone into um, a better morale and a better outlook regarding the change.
3: So, my one piece of advice is wherever possible, involve the people that are impacted by the change uh, in the actual change. So Uh, moving to a new system there's a project for that make sure you have uh um input from the people that actually use it make sure they're involved um it uh uh uh, strategically it just handles the change it uh but it but it also shows faith in your people and the value that they bring and that their opinions are valued and um um, you get one or two people on the on on the project. You know they're going to talk about it with their peers, and it's like everyone's involved. So um, we've talked a lot about communication. It's really the uncertainty that's uh, that's that's the biggest issue, uh, which is why we want to communicate. But having people involved uh, who are impacted by the change wherever possible is a is a critical step.
2: Um, well, I think my one piece of advice it's very synthetic and i think it applies to uh, some of the very difficult relationship that sometimes you have with different departments maybe with sales in particular i would say sometimes and and it's a very uh i would say for me it's kind of like a hard law of support which is don't promise anything that you can deliver and i think that also applies to you know uh managing a group of people through change and and direct communication be like uh straight up and honest with the team that you lead and uh, you know um, always manage that communication uh thoroughly uh, understanding uh, what their point of view is what the context uh, that you know they receive that information is and uh Try to give them all the the tools that they need in order to understand a change, and and don't try to uh, sugarcoat the deal. As as uh, I know that it's easier said than done in certain situations. To you know, to maybe um, make a, a change be like Ilari was saying at the beginning, more appealing than it, than it really is, right? Uh, but then there are consequences later on that you have to deal with
6: you've all given such great advice. I'm left with no original ideas, but I think the transparency and empathy certainly is really key here. But going just a little bit further into transparency and and what I was touching on earlier, the the who, what, where, when, uh, why, and how, I think as much as we can in terms of communicating that to our team, the who is really, who is being impacted by this change. And then obviously, what are we changing and let's really talk about why that initiative is happening, whether it's, um, a choice of our elective choice, or something that's being imposed upon us, uh, sort of the where, where is this you know happening and how is this impacting? And then the why really getting into more of the core understanding is what's motivating this is are we changing software because our current licensing is expiring and the cost doesn't make sense and the features aren't aligned with what we need. Uh, And this is also going to improve our frustration. Remember how the old one that we like, but it keeps crashing all the time and we have to restart our computers constantly. You know, it will improve on that stuff. Uh, And then the how. How are we going to actually implement this and then talk about it uh, with some open dialogue to address the team's concerns?
1: For me, um, the one piece of advice that I would give is um, is to really invest in the professional development of the people that are going to be communicating this change. So that... Is might not be the same for every organization especially smaller organizations you may be the person um, who's going to be communicating the change but if you're in a bigger organization where maybe you have senior ICs or you have team leads or other managers um, it, the thing that I have found very successful is, is teaching those people the skills needed to manage change so how to deal with ambiguity how to be How to think strategically, how to be transparent, how to disagree and commit is a huge one as well. And that's a super important one that I think everybody should know. So um, take the time to help people hone those skills throughout the the entire year, the whole time um, that they're at work. So that when these things come about, they feel equipped to deal with it in the same way that us as leaders do as well.
0: I think that's a super piece of advice, Lauren. I really do because I think the the thing that you said there about investing in it through the year it is is a really important part. Because mm. I, I've I've been in so many situations where the first red flag I see is that change management training is being rolled out across the company.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It might be a bit too late.
0: <laughs> yeah, all that means is that six months from now, I'm going to have a bunch of new people with with all of the credentials for change management, managing some really big stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's a constant, um, just sort of, and it's not even. I don't think you even have to package it. It's like these are change management skills. It's just like these are things you should learn um and then when the change comes about it doesn't feel as shocking um to to have to disagree and commit be okay with the ambiguity and then go and talk about it um and then one thing that uh I have only recently started to do but found this has been really successful so when I'm speaking to the team leads about a big change I always put together like a cheat sheet of FAQs like this is what I think the team will ask you and here is what you can say about those things um and that just sets them up to go into their team meetings and be ready for those questions um, just in case they do come up.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, and just what you said about you know that a lot of those skills are transferable from everyday leadership. You, you can all of the things you talked about around being okay with ambiguity and everything else, that's just being a good leader anyway, isn't it? And that applies to any day of the week, any any time of the year, big change or small change, because we're managing change every day actually
1: definitely. Awesome. Thank
0: you so much. That's it for today. Go to customersupportleaders.com forward slash 103 for the show notes and I'll see you next time.